Thanks for watching this episode of Turning to Him. I invite you to just take a few seconds right now at the beginning and subscribe to this channel so that you can get more videos like this in your feed. Thanks again. Hello, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Turning to Him. My name is Zach Batty, and I am here with Ramsey Anderson. Ramsey, how are you doing today? I'm so good. How are you? Doing very well. Thank you. Um, hey, give us a... Uh, a two or three sentence summary of who you are and what you're about. Let's see. I am Ramsey. I was born and raised in Spanish Fork, Utah, and I serve my mission in the Georgia Atlanta North Mission. All the missionaries will say that theirs is the best, but I will just say there's a reason why they call Georgia God's country. <laughs> um, and I got to speak Spanish that whole time, which I know is the celestial language. So I loved that. And I'm back at Utah State University now. I'm studying nursing in hopes of becoming a nurse practitioner. Um, I love skiing and running and golfing and talking about Jesus. So I'm excited to be here. I love it. Uh, where do you ski? I grew up skiing. Um, I actually grew up skiing at Sundance just because it was cheap. Okay. Yep. Then I ended up racing for them through high school, and that was really fun. Really? Yeah. Okay. What was your event? Um, I So I did slalom, GS, and Super G, but my best was Gosh. definitely Super G. Okay. The whole gamut. Yeah. I liked the speed stuff, though, for sure. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. Um, uh, Georgia. Uh, half of my MTC district went to Macon, Georgia on their mission. So I don't know how close that is to your mission. That's awesome. Yeah, I think Macon is just the Georgia Atlanta mission. Now there's only two. So I was in the north. I kind of covered up into Tennessee and South Carolina a little bit. Okay. That's awesome. Uh, what was that like going from Utah to Georgia? It was actually more of a culture shock than people think yeah but um i so actually my original assignment was for argentina cordoba okay. but i was a covid missionary so i never made it to cordoba and then i was in georgia i didn't think that i would get to speak spanish that much there you just don't associate that with a lot of like a big latino population but i spoke spanish the whole time i was there which i was only there for nine months and then I came home and I finished out as a service missionary because of some health challenges that were going on. But I absolutely loved it. The people there are just, they are one of a kind. And everyone you meet is so friendly. They all just already have a love for Christ and they want to talk about him. So that just, that makes your work so much easier and so much more fun. Oh, that's fantastic. That's so great to hear. Um Man, there's already so much we could talk about. Uh, give it so that I kind of know where to go. Um, thirty second summary of an experience that you wanted to talk about or that you want to share. Oh man, <laughs> that is so difficult. But I would say one of the biggest things that I've been learning lately is submission and being able to hand this plan that I had for my life over to God. And when I went on my mission, I never thought that I would be someone who would come back early, let alone all of the things that has, have happened since then, because my mission was actually the start to a whirlwind of different situations in my life. But those situations helped me to really look at what is the most important thing in my life and establish 
a deeper relationship with Christ where he became my very best friend. And I could trust that his timing and his way of doing things, even though I felt like, oh, I'm going on a mission. This is supposed to go a certain way. And why is this all happening to me? I, and I'm still in the middle of it, but I can see his hand that whole time. And I understand the need to trust in him. And I just think that a life where I give that will and those plans over to him is so much more thrilling and so much more beautiful than what I could have just planned out in my little planner by myself. Yes. Okay. So 16 year old Ramsey, what's the plan? What's the life plan? Oh goodness. 16 year old Ramsey. She was funny. So the life plan was At that point, I wanted to go to medical school and become a pediatric cardiologist, but I was going to go on my mission, come home. At that point, all I wanted more than anything in the world was to go to Stanford. And um, they have a really good pediatric program. And I was going to do that and then come back and work at primary children's here and do surgery. And that was just kind of, I don't know. I think I had, I had a lot of perfectionism that played into that. And I thought that I had to do the absolute hardest thing and what everyone else expected of me. And that has changed so much since then to consulting God first and what, what he wants me to do with my life. And that's been a really difficult shift, but really interesting. All right. So when you're 16, you had a very specific plan. You weren't just floating around through life saying, Hey, whatever happens, happens. You had a, a plan and a goal and you were headed in that direction with both feet stomping away. Yes. And I was not letting anyone get in the way, including my heavenly father. And that was, that was a mistake. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I've never heard somebody say it that way, but I think that's a way a lot of us live our lives. I'm not letting anybody get in the way, including heavenly father. That's, that's great. Um, so why do you think you had so much drive? I mean, you said that you wrestled a little bit with perfectionism, um, was that self-inflicted? Do you feel like that was inflicted by others? I think that that is, I mean, that's kind of a loaded question because I grew up as an only child and my family's really close. And I, I genuinely think that what they did would have worked with anyone else. So I do think it kind of was self-inflicted, but they just had always stressed the importance of following my dreams. And um, believed in how smart and driven I was and told me that from a young age. And I really, I'm someone who, when somebody, something is said to me, I take it to heart a little more than most people. And so I was like, these people really believe in me. I can't let them down. Like I have to do all these things that they're saying I'm capable of doing. And uh, there was a point where I thought I was going to be the first woman president. And then I thought I was going to work for NASA and all of those things. And looking back, it was to make those people who I love so much proud. And I think every kid deserves to grow up being told those things and being believed in. But I just, the way that I came, I'm very perfectionistic already. And so I really internalized those messages and, and kind of started to define myself by the things that I was accomplishing rather than who I really was at my core. Yeah. Okay. Um, at what point does this start to change? I mean, you you mentioned earlier that it was your mission kind of started a chain of events in your life. Yeah. Um, I would 
say there were there were little things that started to change through high school, but even then, and especially then, the pressure was was really on to be everything that everyone wanted me to be. And going on my mission um, was something I'd always wanted to do. Um, but I would say once I got out there, it it got really difficult because I already had this perfectionism. And then as a missionary, there's a lot of weight because you want to convey this message that means so much to you in the best way possible. And you want to help these people who have these really complex problems in their life sometimes. And sometimes you can't, well, you can't do it alone. And that was really difficult for me. I felt like at the end of every day, if I didn't completely collapse out of exhaustion, um, and if I hadn't done everything exactly right, then I only had these 18 months to be a missionary. It was the most important thing I was ever going to do. And how was I going to recover from that day and those mistakes that I had made? And I think that at that point, I had a belief in my Savior, but I didn't have a deep personal relationship with him. I didn't understand the atonement and I didn't understand that that's what he was there for. And I wasn't meant to accomplish all these things alone. I was meant to walk my entire life in partnership with him. And I started to realize that none of those things defined me. And it was him who defined me. And I, things are really put into perspective when you take out every other piece of the equation and you're just a missionary and you're focused on him, you realize what truly matters, especially being away from home. And um, and then when things didn't go as planned and I came home early, I had to really grapple with that and what other people were going to think and who was I letting down. It was kind of the first time I'd really fallen flat on my face publicly. Mm-hmm. And I just had to learn that it, it wasn't, it wasn't about that. It was about, okay, what am I going to do now, what does the Savior want me to do now? And what does he have planned with my life that obviously I can't see? And how do I submit this who I was wanting to be to who he knows I can be and is trying to make me into instead? If you've ever heard that story about the current bush, yes, I felt very, very much like that and still do. I'm still trying to figure out what his plan is for me, but I know it has to be so much better than what I had planned. Right, right. Okay. Um, I think that is such a relatable story because whether it's I came home early from my mission or uh, I'm a, I'm the primary breadwinner and I just got fired or uh, I'm going through a divorce and I never thought that would happen or any of that, I think all of us go through experiences where we say, this is not according to the plan that I had in my mind and I feel like I am letting people down feel like I am failing. So if if you're willing to start walking us through that point where you're on your mission and you start realizing this isn't going as planned. Like this is not going in the direction that I thought it would go. Yeah, it was crazy because I think there is a little bit of a culture and a stigma about um you go on your mission and that's supposed to be the best year and a half of your life. And you're supposed to be happy all the time. And I kind of, when I, when I had hard days and when I was really 
uh, wrestling with that perfectionism, I was like, well, obviously I'm not doing something right because I come home every day and I feel like I just didn't do enough. And I feel like the Lord's not proud of me. I don't know what's what's going on with that. But that wasn't really, it was actually very abruptly that I was sent home. Um, I had gone to the doctor just to see, actually Argentina had opened and they were sending me in for a checkup to see if I was good to go uh, for Argentina. And they had found some things that worried them. I have, um, we can talk about this or not, but I actually didn't know at that point and was in total denial that I had an eating disorder and I had lost a lot of weight. And there were a lot of statistics that said, you know, missionary medical. I went in on Thursday for my doctor appointment and they told me on Friday that I was flying home Saturday morning. So it oh was not radar. I really did love my mission. And I begged my mission president. I was like, please let me stay. This is this is the best thing I've ever done with my life, regardless of how hard it is. Like you cannot make me go. So there wasn't really a point where I realized that that was going to happen at all. It just completely caught me off guard. Um, And coming home and having to figure that out at that point, they didn't really have the greatest programs for what to do with missionaries when they come home, especially for health reasons. And they hadn't diagnosed my eating disorder. They just knew that some things were off with my weight and my heart and things like that. And so when I came home, I told them, I was like, listen, I promised the Lord 18 months. I need to give him those 18 months. We got to figure this out. I'm kind of stubborn. So that's, that's (laughs) how it went. And they offered a service mission and it was beautiful and it was special in very different ways than a proselyting mission in Georgia was. And I feel like I got the best of both worlds actually. Yes. I loved, I loved that. But then at that point, you know, I served, I served the rest of those nine months and then things started getting crazy with my eating disorder up at college. And I ended up going to treatment for that. And that was definitely, I would say like rock bottom where I was like, this is definitely not what I had planned for my life. And when you hit that point, all you have to rely on is your savior. And that reframed everything that I thought my life was going to be for me. Okay. So I want to talk about two things now. Uh, First of all, I want to ask about your experience of both proselyting mission and service mission. You're right. Not a lot of people get to serve in both those areas. Um, So, I mean, what would you say? I think if, if we're talking about stigmas, I hope that it's not still prevalent, but I imagine that it might still be a little bit prevalent that service mission, a, a service mission is plan B. And I certainly don't believe that that's how it is. Um, but I think there might be some people that do. What would you say to the missionary who uh, just found out that they will be serving a service mission or along those lines, and maybe they're struggling with that a little bit? Actually, first, <laughs> tell us what your service mission was. Oh, um, so my service mission, it was really cool because we actually got to choose and work with our mission leaders and choose things that pertained to our interests. And so they want every missionary working in the temple. So I was an ordinance worker, which was probably my favorite assignment. I loved it. It helped me really understand my covenants better. 
Um, and then every missionary also works with some sort of church organization. And then also you can work with a nonprofit as well. So I helped, I love to ski. And so I helped teach ski lessons to people with physical and mental disabilities um, through Wasatch Adaptive Sports. And that was amazing. I loved it. And then I love the medical field. So I volunteered as a Spanish interpreter and an aide at a nonprofit physical therapy clinic. Yes. Um, and then I worked at a food bank in Spanish work called Tabitha's Way. And then I also had no idea why at that point, because um, I didn't know I had an eating disorder, but I had no idea why I felt the need to help out with the addiction recovery program that was taught in Spanish in my town. But it was just this prompting that kept coming. And so I worked, I worked with that at night and those people are some of the most amazing people I've ever met. And they now looking back, I can see why I worked with them. They helped me through that. So those are the things that I got to do. And I would tell anyone with a service mission assignment, I think, I think my mission leaders said it best. They said that proselyting missionaries get the privilege of being the Lord's voice and service missionaries just get a different privilege and it's of being the Lord's hands. And I loved that because when you spend some time with Jesus um, and you walk with him in the scriptures in the New Testament and you see how he spent a day, there was a lot of teaching involved, but there was a lot of, let's just pause and see what this person needs right now. Yeah. And what can I do for them? And I felt like every day on my service mission, I woke up and my job that day was just to love people. Yes. And that was it. But it was the most amazing job and the best focus that I could have had. And so if anyone thinks that there's that, there still is that stigma around that, but we're trying to change that. And if anyone feels less than or different because you have a service mission, just know that the Lord trusts you with his children to be his hands and to love them in the way that he would. And that is such a high honor and so humbling at the same time. Yeah. So many ways to build the kingdom and we need it all. We need it all to build the kingdom. Yeah. So that's fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. That was, that was beautiful. Um, okay. Then the second thing I want to talk about is, uh, since you brought it up, your eating disorder. Um, so on your mission, you, you said that you didn't know, and even, even in your service mission, all throughout, you didn't know that you had an eating disorder. And this was even after they said, we're sending you home. So talk to me about that. How did that work? Yeah, it's, I'm still trying to reconcile that a little bit. Um, it's something I never, ever would have thought I'd struggle with in my life. Like it, it just, it wasn't even on my radar. But I think my stepdad will tell you with the perfectionism, the word he likes to use is that I was a ticking time bomb. If it wasn't going to be this, it was going to be something else. <laughs> okay. um, and this is just how it manifested, I guess. But I got out there and like I said, I just felt this immense pressure to be the very best I could be. And at the end of every day, I, I kind of just felt like a failure. And so I was like, and the other, the other aspect to that is that there are people when you're on your mission because you're a representative of Christ um, who put a lot on you. They tell you a lot about their life that they don't tell anyone else. 
Mm-hmm. You find people who are going through a lot. And I take those things to heart. And it's very difficult to watch someone going through something and not not be able to help. And there are some really ser- serious situations that people were in that pained me and I didn't have any control. And so I think in an effort to control what I could as like part one, but then part two also to be good at what I could be good at, we as a missionary, you start your day working out. And so that was kind of like, okay, if I can start my day and do perfect at this, then maybe I can do perfect to everything else throughout my day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started to control what I was eating. There also, I would say, at least in my mission, and I've heard throughout the United States, is a little bit of an interesting culture among sister missionaries. And so there were um, there were some things said and done by other missionaries. I think it was just part of the culture that um, they wanted to be perfect, and that was part of it. And so I kind of started to to fall into that a little bit. And I just, I didn't, I really didn't know. It was just, I was trying to be healthy. I was trying to take care of my body. And then I genuinely thought when I came home, I was like, well, I haven't been feeling great. Maybe I got some sort of bug, something like that. And then I came home and I've always been a runner. I ran on my high school cross country team, but I was never fast. I just did it because I loved it. Came home and all of a sudden, Um, The interesting thing about restrictive eating disorders is that you actually start to perform better athletically at the beginning. And I started as a service missionary, my family, we have these races that we run like the freedom run every year, things like that. And I could still do that as a service missionary. And so I started to run again and I was like winning these races out of nowhere. I didn't know what happened, but I was like, apparently what I'm doing is working and a big, big component of my eating disorder became an exercise addiction. I just, I had to push myself harder and faster and it all had to do with my value of hard work, but Satan took that and twisted that to make me think that I was working hard and I was being self-disciplined by doing these things. And if I couldn't be good at being a missionary and the things I wanted to be good at, and I couldn't control certain things, I could at least control this. And it it's a very slippery, very gradual slope that just eventually, once I got to college, um, spiraled completely out of control. So it sounds like for you, it was a combination of um, self-image as well as control. Yeah, I think is that the thing is a lot of people think that eating disorders are about body image and mine was I never cared about any of that. It was more of like tying a moral value to, I don't have self-discipline if I eat the cookies and if I skip a workout or I don't run as hard and as fast as I possibly can, then I'm not a hard worker. Yes. Uh, All about that and never really about anything to do with what I look like, which you'll find. Um, there's a misconception and there are a lot of eating disorders that are about body image, but there are a lot that are about trauma that people hold or numbing emotions, or there are so many reasons why people struggle. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. I'm curious as to your opinion on this because you served in, uh, in the ARP, uh, program. My experience. So, uh, I'm a former Bishop. 
and my experience in working with addiction is it almost, with exception, but it almost doesn't matter what the addiction is, how it manifests itself. The root of it is being able to control something. The rest of my life feels out of control. And so this is how I manifest control. And whether it's uh, cutting or pornography or uh, drinking or substance abuse or things like that, this part of my world I'm in control of. Uh, was that your experience in ARP? Um, yes, I I never thought about it that way. But as you say that, I think I can see that with the people that I worked with. And it was so interesting to watch them because a lot of them were pretty well along in their recovery mm-hmm. or they were there to stay in recovery, to watch them regain what actual control and actual freedom was over their life and realize that. And the light that came back in their eyes and the joy that they had when they realized, oh, oh, this is handing it over to God is in a way it's out of my control, but in a way I have more freedom. I have more control. That was a really cool shift to watch. Yes. Okay. So at what point do you realize I've got a problem here and I I need some help? Not until I was up at school, honestly. So I got to college um, and I think things were kind of kept at bay for a while because they only really sent me home for the weight loss. And then my blood pressure was low, but it's always been low. And they were just missionary medical has to be careful. But um, I got up to school and I think just being in charge completely of my own food and my time at the gym, um, things like that, I just... The thing with eating disorders is it's never enough. There's always, you have to work out for 15 minutes longer. I have to restrict more food until one day I like was walking to school and I fell over because I was so tired. Mm -hmm. And I remember just kind of thinking, I was like, oh yeah, like I've been freezing cold. I haven't gone out and done with anything with anyone, which is so unlike me because I just have had no, absolutely no desire to. And then also, I just, I realized how sick I really felt. Like I felt like I was going to pass out and I didn't have the energy to do the things I wanted to do. I couldn't concentrate on school. All the things that were important to me kind of felt like they were just slipping away. And I had a lot of brain fog going on. I couldn't think clearly. And I just remember walking to school and falling over and being so exhausted, just walking up a flight of stairs. And I was like, I think, I think it's something's up and it's time to see someone. And it was really interesting because tender mercies are so real. I had a roommate at the time who had struggled with something similarly. So she was able to refer me to a dietitian up here. Um, and I went to that dietitian. I saw her for a couple weeks and then she ended up sending me to a doctor who specializes in eating disorders. I went to him one week. He wanted me to come back the next and the next week I was still in denial of how bad it was, but the next week I came back and he took some blood pressures and things and just said, if you don't go to the ER right now, I'm making you sign an AMA. And I didn't think it was He was like, you could go home and go into cardiac arrest tonight while you're sleeping. Your heart is not doing well. And I didn't know it had escalated to that point. I was completely unaware how bad it was. 
Um, so that that ended me in the hospital around Thanksgiving time last year. Um, and then I couldn't leave the hospital until I had promised that I had plans to go to treatment. And so it was kind of crazy because I entered, it's, it's so interesting the way God works. Um, today is November 30th and I entered treatment on December 1st last year. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. So kind of crazy. It's been a whole year, but I, um, I just remember I was like, I need to finish school. I need to finish the semester. It's so important to me. And usually they don't let people do that from there, but I was able to kind of make some arrangements with my professors and with the center for change where I went and was luckily able to finish out the semester at least and the work that I had done. But, um, yeah, it just, it just progressed so fast that I didn't even realize. Yeah. So when you are lying in the hospital, uh, lying in the ER, is that when you realized, okay, this is a thing now, this is in my life and I need to start working with this? Or were you still like, I don't know about this? The interesting thing is my brain was not in the right place. And so I was like, all these people are crazy. They yeah. don't know what they're talking about. Um, And my mom and my stepdad, they drove up two hours from Spanish Fork and um, that stay ended up being about a week in the hospital. So they got a hotel and stayed up here with me and they're just angels in every way. But um, I'm pretty sure I fought them on some stuff when I was, when I was in there and um, getting out of the hospital, I was like, okay, I'm going to go right back to school. And they, they were like, nope, you are coming home. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I do remember, I remember laying there in that hospital bed and I was like, I could not stop crying. Um, I hadn't, I couldn't believe that I had hit this point. It wasn't what I had planned. And I just told my mom, it's like, the only way that going through all of this, this is the hardest thing I've ever been through. And the only way going through all of this is worth it is a, if I get a better relationship with my savior out of it and B, if I'm able to connect with or help somebody else because of it, which is why I think for a while I was embarrassed and I didn't want to be vocal about it, but now I am an open book because I really do feel that it's more of a prevalent problem than we know. And it needs to be talked about. Yeah. Okay. So I definitely want to get to that also, because I want to hear your thoughts about, you know, what, what can be done to help uh, to help the problem at the root, but I want to finish your story. So you're in the hospital for a week. You have the support of, uh, your mom and stepdad. Um, does it ever, is there ever a moment where it kind of clicks and you start realizing that these people around you that, that love you and these medical professionals and these, uh, I assume some therapists and counselors and things like that, Maybe they are right. Maybe they're onto something and I have a little bit of a problem. I think that didn't come till a lot later. It didn't come until, because at that point, my brain was so far gone mm -hmm. that I wasn't able to think logically. And when I got into treatment and I started being properly nourished again and I had a brain that could work. I finally started piecing together those things and realizing just how bad it had been. So why did you agree to go to treatment? Basically because 
I mean, my family really didn't give me much of a choice. <laughs> okay. And I could see how scared they were. And there was a part of me that understood that. Um, and I, I just wanted to make them happy. Honestly, okay. Okay. I, I started it with my motivation is my family and I'm just doing this for them. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. But that, that worked then. Cause then at some point in treatment, you said that's when you started to realize that how, how serious the situation was. Yeah. Yeah. Once I started to, um, to nourish myself and get some of that weight back. And then when you're on in treatment, you get to go with your family for a couple hours at a time, once you're healthy enough. Mm -hmm. And when I did that and I was fully nourished and in the right space, I realized how much connection I'd been missing and how much energy I hadn't had and just how out of it I had been and that I never wanted to feel that way again. I realized the difference. And even though treatment was so uncomfortable and required so many very, very difficult things for me, it was so worth getting back to a point where life felt like it was worth living again. And I just remember as hard as it was also on the other side of that, being able to feel well enough to feel joy again, like true joy. Hmm. Okay. Tell me about, um, I assume that there is a, a habitual addiction to working out and this perfectionism, but also, uh, kind of a spiritual, I mean, you mentioned that Satan twists this idea of, look, let's work hard. Okay. Well, that's a good principle that a disciple of Christ works hard. Satan takes that and twists it to says you are to say you are never working hard enough, which in reality is true. Yes. But that's part of being mortal. Like none of us are working hard enough, depending on how you define enough. And I mean, that that's where the twist happens. That's where Satan gets a hold of us. So Talk to me about that recovery process of you starting to go through, I assume, a spiritual recovery. Yeah. I think that Satan knows us so well. Um, and that's that's just true about him. And the only the only thing that combats that is how much better our Savior knows us. But he really does. I think at the root of everything he tries to do, there's pride. And if he can't get us to completely fall off the path, and he knows that about certain people, then he can get us to think that we can do things alone, that we can do this life alone, and that we can overcome challenges without Christ. And I wasn't in a space where I was actively thinking, oh, I can do this without Jesus, but it was just, I, I fell victim to that hustle culture that we live in and the culture of I'm defined by what I do and how much I can do and how long my to-do list is. And I started focusing on those things instead of who I am to God and who he made me to be. And I didn't even focus on who he wanted me to be because I had, like I said, at the beginning, all these plans of what I wanted. Um, and when I got into treatment, there's really, it's amazing. There's nothing that you can hold on to except for him. 
for the first little while you're there, you don't even have contact with your family. And my mom, she's my rock. She is absolutely everything to me. But I didn't have all of those coping mechanisms that I had learned through working out and, and some really negative things. And so all I had as my foundation, as my basis, when I got in there to turn to was Christ. And so every minute that I could find, you know, I brought my scriptures, I brought my patriarchal blessing with me everywhere and was trying to really, because I knew that I had never established, I had always believed in Christ and I had always loved the gospel, but I hadn't established an actual brother and sister, best friend relationship with him. And I had thought that I could do this without him. And it was that pride. And I think that's why I was so addicted, if you will, to working so hard and feeling like I was enough. But um, I none of us are ever enough. And I think there's something so liberating so beautifully freeing in realizing finally that nothing I could ever do was enough on my own. But if I walked this life hand in hand with Christ, like through him, I am, we are enough together. And I started to shift my mindset and define myself by, well, how does the savior see me? What is my friendship with him? Like what can he and I get through together? And I had never looked at, not even really my mission that way. It was always, I need to work harder. I need to do these things. And when I started to look at it as a team effort and actually yoke myself to him, that's when everything changed. Um, you mentioned that you have a better understanding of who you are to God. Who, who are you to God? How does God see you? I think when God looks at us, he sees our potential. And so where I look at myself and see the lack, he just says, oh, no, 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 Ramsey, that's that's just where you have room to grow. I see this daughter of mine who has all of these wonderful attributes that are very unique and very specific to her who can become so much more when she's linked with me. And he just sees that. He just gets so excited about what our future can hold, about everything we can be, that every mess up and everything that we would be beating up on ourselves for and the devil would have us be so upset about and get stuck in. Heavenly Father's just like, don't you see? This is just a chance for you to become better. And it's a chance for you to rely on me and you and me to work together. And I was thinking about why some of the greatest joy I've ever felt in my life is when I've been in those rock bottom moments. And I think it's because he likes to get in there with us. And I I mean, I always, I have this saying that rock bottom is one of Jesus's favorite place, places to be. And so when he sees that, it's an opportunity for us to have an experience together and get out of there together. And that's all he wants. And I think the ARP program really helped me with that because I remember I was praying to know how God saw me more than the superficial I'm a child of God thing um, that everyone says, which is beautiful and it's a truth, but I needed something more profound than that. 
And I just remember sitting outside of ARP one night after I had talked to everyone there. And God very clearly said to me, you know how you see these people. And I adore all of them. I think they're some of the strongest people I've ever met. I never looked at them and thought about their past or the addiction that they had had. It was, I love talking to this person and look how hard they're working to overcome this now. And I can't wait to watch what they do in the future. And all of a sudden I realized that I had seen that, them that way because God had gifted me with that so that I could see them and know that that's the way he sees me. So sorry, that was kind of a long-winded answer, but I think he sees us for who we can be and who we will be someday when we when we link ourselves with him. I love that. I love that testimony. Um, for how long were you in the recovery program? So I was, let's see, it was about nine months that I was there. You start in, I was an in inpatient for six weeks and then residential care for about three months. And then they have an outpatient treatment where you come in during the day. And I was there for a couple months too. Okay. So you've been in there for, you were there for nine months and then that's it. That you're, you're cured problems over life is easy from this point on. Right. I'm sure. Isn't that how it works? Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. So something I really wanted to be candid about actually coming into today is you see these podcasts, you hear people bear their testimony. You always hear about the miracle and how everything resolved itself in the end. And I want to be very clear about the fact that I am still in the middle of my story because nobody talks about the middle. Yeah. And I'm back up at college now and it is a struggle every single day. Um, but it's a struggle that I choose to involve my savior in. And there have been slip ups along the way and things that I've had to figure out. And that is mortality. And it's special to be able to be, you know, when I first got invited to be on this podcast, I was like, well, I'm not in the place where people who tell their story are when they tell their story. And then I thought, no, I think it's important for people to know it's okay if you're in the middle right now and you're still figuring it out. So that is the interesting thing. And the misconception about treatment is people think, you know, my family, I think thought I'd come out and I'd be cured and everything would be Mm -hmm. fine. And they have walked this road with me and sat with me while I've had to cry through eating a milkshake because I have to wait restore again or whatever it is and been so patient. I'm so grateful for that. But it is one of those things. I think a lot of people have challenges in their lives where you just know it's going to be a lifelong battle and doesn't necessarily get easier, but it's like that scripture in Mosiah. um, God strengthens our backs so that we can bear it. And I've watched him do that very slowly. There are nights that, you know, I'm on my knees crying and asking him why in the world this is my cross to bear. But I know that at the end of this, even though I can't see it right now, there is a reason, there is a plan, and and he knows what he's doing. And I can I can trust in a God who I know through my experiences is loving and cares about me and sees my potential and only wants me to have true deep joy. And if that means some suffering right now and some not understanding right now. I'm okay with that because I've got him and that's, 
all I really need. Yes. I love that. And I'm so glad that you mentioned that and underlined that point. Um, when I was thinking about what to name this podcast, I specifically did not name it Turned to Him. And I named it Turning to Him because I thought none of us have fully and completed our turn to the Savior. All of us are in a continual act of turning to Him, and it's still happening. And so I love that you say, look, we're, nobody talks about the middle, but the truth is, all of us are in the middle of something, and that's mortality. I mean, that's what you said, and, and I, I love that. I agree with that 100%, that there are times in our lives when perhaps that chapter is over and we've turned to him, but none of us are done struggling with temptation. None of us are done struggling with mortality. None of us are done struggling with shortcomings, and that's something that we fight every day. That's part of the test. That's how it works. And we will do that until the day that we die, at least. And I don't know how it works after this, but I know for sure that we'll do it until we die in this life. In closing, what do you tell, what does strong Ramsey tell weak Ramsey? Because if if you're like me, you have moments of strength and moments of weakness and moments of strength. And the goal is that that continually climbs up, but it's not a linear path. So what do you yeah. tell yourself or what do you tell someone else who is trying to decide, is it worth going, is, is it worth going through the recovery process? Yeah. I think for me, it all comes down to joy. There was an I don't know where I heard it, but somebody in the Martin and Willie Hancart company was asked if they would do it all over again. And they said, yes, because it was in that process that we became acquainted with angels. And I'm sure I butchered that, but I think about that a lot. And I think about how it really took this to drive me to my knees to see really seriously seek my savior. And if it was this process that made me acquainted with him, then that is joy right there. And that is worth it. And joy is so much more than the happiness that comes from not having the difficult things in our lives. But I think I've gained so much more from this experience because it's allowed me to get to know him better. And so the more I struggle, if I choose that route of turning to him, then I will have a level of joy and a level of profound meaning in my life that I can't find in any other way. And so the, the scripture I repeat to myself every day when I have to make those difficult decisions is the Philippians 4.13, just that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that when I do allow him into those moments and I allow him to strengthen me, that's what leads to the joy that he always intended for us to feel. I love it. Thank you so much for taking this evening to share your experience with us. Um, and I know that there will be people that watch this that get inspired to hopefully make a, hopefully reach out for help. 
and to make a change and to invite others to help them to change and, and ultimately the Savior to help them change. I hope so too. Thank you so much for having me. 